And our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 10. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, do not take any gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So do not be afraid of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight and over the next four weeks, we're going to look at what not to do. Why? Because it's good for you. It's good for you. Have, have you ever gotten to that place in your life where you just didn't know what to do? Where you had done everything you knew to do and you were at the end of your rope? I've been there. Maybe you've been there. You just don't know what happens next. And so in those times, I want to uh, commend to you simply this. Wait. Just wait. And in the meantime, don't do anything stupid. I mean, that's really it. I mean, things don't work out. And so Jesus basically says, here are four things not to do. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to look uh, tonight at fear not, uh, sin not, worry not, and judge not. And so when you're in these sort of spaces where you just don't know what to do, sometimes you just have to slow down and not do anything. And there are a number of things that it's just good not to do. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. And what you find is that in the first 50 years of Christianity, nearly all the earliest followers had to go on was the oral teachings of Jesus passed down by eyewitnesses. There, there was no New Testament um, within the first 50 years uh, of Jesus. Paul is beginning to doing some writings uh, in places like Galatian, Ephesus, and Colossae, uh, Philippi. But the Gospels as we know them, the writings of Paul, simply aren't going to be around for a while. And so by the time you get to the Gospel of Matthew, most scholars believe that Matthew was written roughly between 60 and 65 A.D., So a full 15 plus years after um, this sort of 50 year period where basically there's these oral traditions of Jesus teaching and and Jesus didn't say all that much, but he did say, say things like this, be not afraid, fear not, judge not, worry not. And so I I want us to go back to that scripture that we started with tonight. And I I just want you to uh, think about this, what Jesus says. He says, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. Really, leprosy. Drive out demons. Oh, and by the way, when you do this, don't take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey. Or, or extra shirt or sandals, none of that. And wherever you go, search for some worthy person there and stay there. Someone you've never met before, stay at their house. And watch out because men will hand you over to the local councils, flog you in their synagogues, and you will be arrested. Does that sound like a good idea? You, you will be sheep among wolves, and all men will hate you because of me. Oh, oh, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
It, it sounds like uh, a movie that I saw. I mean, not, I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, let's get this straight. Jesus is sending out untrained men who have only been with him a short while. And they're supposed to drive out demons, work with and cleanse highly contagious leprosy. Yes, that movie. Furthermore, these workers are to take no cash, no credit, no cards, no health insurance with them, no itinerary, no reservation at the Hampton Inn. And if all of this goes as planned, you'll stay at the house of someone you've never met. And the rewards for your efforts and success, you'll be arrested by hostiles, tried unfairly in a sham trial, be beaten, whipped within an inch of your life and hated because of your association with Jesus. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. And oh, and one more thing, don't be afraid. That's what Jesus says. I mean, you could make a movie out of that. I mean, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? That's what the disciples said. Are you kidding me? Really, Jesus, that's what you want me to do? And he says, yes. You have no reason to be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. So, so let's look back at the text. He says, do not be what, friends? Afraid of who? Of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus says, be what? Afraid. You might say be very afraid of the one, meaning himself, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's like, look, you don't have to be afraid of them. If you're going to be afraid of somebody, I mean, let's get your priorities straight about who you really need to be afraid of in, in terms of what does fear mean. Now, in the Hebrew, I, w- I would remind you, afraid then doesn't mean exactly what it means today. In Jesus' day, to be afraid meant that you had a proper trust, respect, awe, reverence of whatever that was right and so you would like around here we say you need to ha- you need to be afraid of a 220 plug right you, i mean you don't put a fork in a 220 that will end you right so you need to have but if, if you connect to it correctly it'll wash your clothes it might do dinner and oven i mean there's real power in a 220 plug and jesus the lord of all is much more powerful than that so he says don't be afraid of them don't be afraid of folks who can simply kill your body that's not a big deal rather be afraid respect and trust hit your wagon to the one who can destroy both your soul and your body for all time now that you need to pay attention to it's it's not something lightly to simply be passed over and worry about other things in this life now if you move on into verses 30 and 31 jesus says it like this he says are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care little sparrows y'all know sparrows right right they're so cute they're tiny. Now, some translations actually say that God the Father knows when every single sparrow... Now, when, around Oklahoma, when you see sparrows, you often will see hundreds of them all at once flying around. And, and one, one of the scriptures says that even when they just light, when they barely just touch the ground, um, God knows it. And, and he says, if, if God so loves these sparrows, right, that come by the hundreds or the thousands, and they take off and land and take off and land and take on the land, if, if God knows about all of that, and even the hairs on, on your head are numbered, right? Now, that's harder when you're younger. As you get older, there's less of them. But as, as they're numbered. They're not just counted. They're numbered. Like, like when you're brushing your hair, like the angels are like, well, there went 748. You know, that one's gone. That one's gone. They're all numbered. If, if God knows the sort of minute detail of sparrows and hairs on your head, then don't be afraid. Because you are worth more than many sparrows not just one sparrow but many sparrows your your works much much more than that jesus says so this this is just one of many stories that go like this if and, and jesus is beginning to get a little impatient 
with his followers. You'll notice that this story is in Matthew 10. If you go back two chapters into Matthew 8, what you find is that they've already been through this scenario before. In Matthew 8, 23 and 24, it says this. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples did what? They followed him. No big deal. Jesus gets in the boat and they followed him. Now, this boat, there are lots of boats on the Sea of Galilee today. If you go to the Sea of Galilee, uh, you'll see a boat looks like this. Uh, that is not the boat that Jesus was in. Those are really big for tourists and they're really nice. And there's the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. It's about 12 miles long, about seven miles across. Um, and it's, it's beautiful, picturesque. We took that, I think, in late April, early May. Um, the, the boat that Jesus would have been in would have been a, just about a third that size. It would have been about like this, uh, really not much bigger than a rowboat. Uh, and this is where the disciples uh, would have gotten into. This was actually, this is a 2,000-year-old boat. They called it the Jesus boat. You can go see it at a museum uh, there in Israel on the north side of Galilee um, at, at the lake there. Uh, and so they have that. Now, so this is the boat that they're getting into. And, and what happens then is, is there is this huge storm that comes up, not on a big boat, not on a yacht, but on this tiny little rowboat, this huge storm comes up, and I want to show you why this is possible. Uh, and on the Lake of Galilee, what you find is there's a mountain range, basically, that goes all the way down into the Judean Desert. And at the very north edge, you'll see there's this dip, this, this crevice here. And what happens is when a storm rolls through, all of that power, all of that energy, all of that wind gets pushed between in, into this gap and so it comes through with great force uh, so if you've ever been a part of something like that you know how ferocious that can be and so the waves they whip up seem like out of nowhere uh, the seas get big and they start to swamp your boat and it's very very scary something that you would be afraid of and this is of course what happens in the story with jesus so suddenly what kind of storm a furious storm shoots right out of this gap out of nowhere. When the waves are coming over the boat, it suddenly comes upon them. And, and the, the disciples are not happy about this. So I want to ask you this in your life, metaphorically or in a very real way. Have you ever been a part of a storm that just seemed to come out of nowhere? I mean, you're just going along and then, wow, your whole life is wrecked. You're not sure you're going to survive the day. This is what happened to Jesus' disciples. Jesus gets in the boat, they follow him, and off they go. Well, this happened to me uh, when I was about 16. Uh, I was in Boy Scouts, and I'd been a lifeguard, and I had did, did rowboating and canoeing and sailing. And my younger uh, cousin, Keith, was about 14, and so I, went, I was showing off. We were down uh, at the Gulf of Mexico, and there was this little inlet off of the ocean, and it was awesome. And it was this lake and had all these lily pads everywhere. And I, I want to show you uh, my family. We'd go down to see my family. There's my Uncle Foy and Aunt Dorsan, my cousins Cliff and Carolyn and Keith. Keith's on the right. Uh, my aunt there in the front is about five foot nothing. She is tiny. And she is afraid, afraid of the water. She does not like, she does not get her hair wet. And just the whole thing. So I had been practicing on one of these little, you know, sunfish, you know, sailboats. And, and they were great for one person, two people. And so Monday night we go out and it's perfect. And I show Keith how we do it. And we turn around and, you know, we duck our heads. And, and it's awesome. We do that Tuesday night. We do that Wednesday night. And every night, Andor Sands watching us like, well, I've always wanted to go on a sailboat. I'm like, yeah, it's great. It's fun. I've got this down. I did it all summer at camp. And this is great. She'd watch us go in and out. Well, the last night was Friday night before we all went out for the big dinner. You know, you go out to dinner when you're down at the Gulf of Mexico, eat your shrimp and all that. And so she was a little dressed up, and we're like, you, just before we go, you want to do this. You don't want to do it after dark. You know, this is great. 
And so sure enough, myself, Keith, get my Andor sand in there. And we start going out in the lagoon. And it was awesome. It was so great. And you know what happens? A furious storm out of nowhere comes from the north. It doesn't, you could never see it coming. It wasn't, you know, over the ocean. It came from the north. Never saw it. And, whoo, and immediately, you know, the thing flips around and we're gathering the hatches and we're pulling it. And this, of course, Keith and I are like, awesome. This is great because you're going really fast. And my aunt is not pleased. She is not happy at all. And we're going and it's tipping. And then it stopped for a second. And we're like, oh, awesome. And so we timed it real fast. And then one big gust out of nowhere whoo, flipped us completely over. Now, in those moments before the wind, I was a little afraid of the wind. I was a little afraid, but I could swim. I was lifeguard. I wasn't really all that afraid of that. But, you know, it was kind of scary because there's lightning and stuff. We were trying to get back. And then, you know, but if the, the whole pond, though, looked like this. We had lily pads everywhere. And then something I'd never seen before happened. My aunt's hair was wet. And she came up underneath the lily pad with, you know, they have those long stems that go all the way down. And she was like, a snake, snake's got me, snake's got me. And she was convinced that this lily pad was attacking her to the death of her life. And something happened in that moment that I will never forget. I was no longer afraid of the storm. I was afraid of my aunt. And to this day, she still tells a story about how Keith and I tumped her over that she'll never forgive us and we're horrible people and that she trusted us. We lured her in with our trust over the five days of beautiful sailing and then on the last night, we threw her in the water and she drowned and was eaten by snakes. That's the way she tells the story. <laughs> Somehow she lives to tell it. I don't know how. Fear, now, now, this is the thing. I was in the boat and I was afraid of the storm a little bit, but then something happened. I was afraid of my aunt. And what was going to happen next. So I want to show you the biblical story. How that goes. You see the storm comes up. And they think they're going to die. Um, but the scripture says this. That Jesus was what? Sleeping. Now when Andy Stanley tells a story. He says this. This is his interpretation. He doesn't believe Jesus was sleeping. He thinks Jesus was fake sleeping. Like you do with your two year old. Like, they sleep yet? Can you sleep yet? Can I get up yet? And, and I think he might be right about that. I've never heard that interpretation before, but I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about it, right? Because he's just going to see, what are the disciples going to do? Do they trust me yet? Do they understand who I am? No. So whether he's real sleeping or fake sleeping, we don't know. All we know is the disciples go to him, and they wake him up like, Jesus, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. We're going to drown. And look at Jesus' reply. You have little faith. Like, I'm napping here. I had a really nice dream. Why are you so afraid? Why? I'm right here with you. I'm in the boat. The boat's not even that big. I'm the Lord of life. And he gets up, stands at the boat. He rebukes the winds in the middle of Lake Galilee and the waves. And immediately, completely calm. Now, the men were amazed. And they asked this. What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And the answer is, of course, what? Oh, he's Superman. He stands up in the boat and says, stop, wind, and it stops. Waves stop, and they stop. This is not a mortal in the way we think of mortals. He has power that they've never seen before. He can control nature. Like, who is this? And all of a sudden, they are more afraid of Jesus, the one who's in the boat with them, 
than the storm outside. They are getting a glimpse in the power that Jesus holds within himself that he can use at any time. And they know him, and they're, they're afraid. They really are afraid. And in different translations, if you look at this story in the Gospel of Mark, for example, uh, it says that the, the, the disciples, the people in the boat, they were in absolute awe. They were staggered. They, they feared a great fear, is the way one translation puts it. They were so afraid. They couldn't understand what was going on. This was beyond their concept, way outside of their box. Here is Jesus, their friend, their teacher, the rabbi, who stands up in a boat and says, peace, be still. And all the world changes in that moment at the word of God to the creation of God. And they were wigged out, as we would be, I would imagine. And yet we have another story again and again and again. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. Now this time, they have just finished the feeding of the 5,000. They come to Jesus. You can almost see the committee, right? They're like, people are getting angry. They're kind of hungry. They've been out here all day. Somebody, and they're like, hey, you go ask Jesus. You tell him. And he's like, Okay, uh, the committee sent me. They want something to eat. And you know what Jesus says? You, you give them something to eat. You do it. You're not my disciples. I'm teaching you how to do this. You give them something to eat. They didn't know what to do with that. But somehow, some way, right? Miracle upon miracle, everybody gets fed. They have 12 baskets left over. And now there's something like, yeah, we did that. We, we fed 5,000 people. Good us. Yay. And then I want you to see what happens next. Right after this, <laughs> the scripture says in 1422... That Jesus, what? Made the disciples get into the boat. Why? Last time they were in the boat, what happened? Didn't go so well. So the first time Jesus says, hey, get in the boat. They're like, okay. Next time Jesus says, let's go. And they're like, whoa, whoa. What, what about the storm stuff? And Jesus like, get in the boat. Like, come on, get in the boat. And, and, and I'm going to go on ahead of him to the other side. Go on ahead of him. Uh, and, and Jesus is going to stay and dismiss the crowd. And so Jesus like, get in the boat. They're like, I don't want to get in the boat. He's like, get in the boat. We don't really want to go, Jesus. Like, get in the boat. So they do. They get in the boat. They're obedient. They do what the Lord's asked them to do. And, you know, he pushes them off, and he's going up to that mountain, that mountain gap that we looked at just a second ago. And they're going to they're go about halfway out in the lake. Now, notice that this is a step in their progression. This is a step in their obedience. This is a step in their faithfulness. That before, even when Jesus was with them, they were worried and afraid. Now they're willing to get into a boat even without him. Now, Jesus is always doing, you know, wild sorts of things, and, and they know that's who Jesus is. But they go ahead and they get in the boat, and they, they go to the other side. So then, um, look what happens in the story. After he dismissed them, Jesus goes up on the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, any of you all have ever been sailing or rowing, you know what it's like when the wind is against you. Uh, and, and in your life, sometimes you just feel like that, right? You just feel like, man, life is against me. We're trying to row in, um, but we can't make it in. Uh, you might think of it as like the first rowing machine. You row and you don't go anywhere. You row and you just stay right there. That's kind of what was going on. They were trying to make it in. They couldn't make it in. And shortly before dawn, I mean, notice this. They've been out there all night. Can you imagine being out in the middle of a lake all night trying to row to get in and you can't make any headway? So right before dawn, Jesus goes out to them walking on the lake without any stones. Just walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were, what, say it with me, terrified. Really? It's Jesus. And you're terrified? Yes. I think we might be terrified as well. But you would think, this is chapter 14, you're almost like you're halfway there in the Gospel of Matthew. Halfway in, you would think that they would go, 
Yay, Jesus is here. Maybe we can get to shore. That's not what they say. They're like, uh, we're terrified. It's a ghost. And look what Jesus immediately says to them. Fail. Seriously. (laughs) Come on. Come on. We did the feeding of the 5,000. We've done this whole other thing. I'm going to send you out. It's been fine. No, it doesn't work. So Jesus says to them, take courage. Take courage. Now, we often will read this in a very nice Sunday school sort of version. Like, oh, guys, come on. He's like, quit being cowards, is what he's saying. Uh, One scripture says he upbraided them. He's like, quit it. You guys know this by now. You're out here. You can trust me. What are you doing? Let's go. Don't be afraid. Oh, my gosh. Don't be afraid. I'm God himself. There's no reason for you to be afraid. But they were terrified. It's just part of our human nature. Now, the thing is, you would think that as we get older, we would be less and less afraid. We're older. We're wiser. Oftentimes, you have more money. Um, You know, you're in a safer neighborhood, whatever it is. But you know what I find oftentimes is as I age, I get more and more afraid. Because I I see more things. I know what's possible. I mean, I, I can't go to a public park and and watch little kids play it drives me crazy i'm like that kid's gonna die i mean i've had two kids i've raised them and every time i see a two-year-old and their parents are like in the other county i'm like are you kidding me i'm terrified i mean i get it sometimes the more you know the more you know freaked out of your mind you are because you know what's possible you've lived it you have wisdom that terrifies you of what happens in this world and jesus says take courage it is i don't be afraid don't be cowardly And so here's here's the lesson, friends. Jesus says this to you, to me. You don't have to be afraid. Even when there's something to be afraid of. You may have heard a mom or grandma or somebody who loves you say, oh, there's nothing to be worried about. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, there's plenty to worry about. Yet, don't be afraid. Even when there's something to be afraid of. There's plenty to be afraid of. And he's real upfront and honest about that. There's lots and lots of things wrong with the world, but you don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. As a way of us sort of beginning to live this together, I want to change the word. I want you to read this with me. Will you read it with me? I don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. Let's do it again. I don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. One more time. I don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. Are there things to be afraid of? Sure, but we don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus is with us. Jesus is alive. And and not just alive like he did some miracles and it's cool. No, he defeated death itself. The only person ever on the planet to do that. Alive and well, proving that he was who he said he was. God himself, savior of the world. A lover of all his children, all his children. And all means all his children. And, And the thing was, this began to get translated into the disciples, into the followers of Jesus. You see, when they lost their fear of death, when they knew that Jesus was raised, all of a sudden this teaching started to become possible. When they lost their fear of death, they feared not. When you lose your fear of death, you can fear not. But it comes in that moment where you're no longer afraid. I always love those Mission Impossible movies. And movies like them, when when they figure out that the person they're dealing with isn't afraid to die, and you're like, oh, this is going to get good. Right? Like, whatever, I'm not afraid to die, bring it. That's who Christians are supposed to be. The people who are no longer afraid of death because Jesus is alive in us. We are not to fear people who can only kill our bodies. That's no big deal. Because we're going to live on anyway. It's a beautiful thing. You don't have to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. 
So as our action step, friends, I want you to think about this. I don't have to be afraid even when fill in the blank. Because we all have fears. Some of those are very real. Some of those are imagined. Some of those are in between. But we don't have to be afraid even when. And it begins when we realize that Jesus is alive and we get to live forever as well in him, for him, in this life and the next. Probably the most radical transformation that I love in the Bible is found in the book of Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon the followers. Jesus asks them to stay there. The Holy Spirit comes. God's Spirit fills the people in the room. And watch what Peter does, the great first bishop of the church. Now, you'll remember that this is the same Peter who was cutting people's ears off in the garden and then running away. The one who um, said, I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then, you know, the rooster crows. Same Peter, the same one that was not at the cross, the one that did not understand the resurrection at the tomb. He goes, he looks, he leaves puzzled and confused. This same man in the book of Acts chapter 2, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, look what happens. He stands up with the eleven, he raises his voice and addresses the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. He's preaching in front of thousands of people. These people are not drunk as you suppose, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This This is Bishop Peter speaking. Freddy Cat Peter completely different he says your sons and daughters you'll prophesy your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams and then it gets good he says the sun will be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the lord and everyone everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved and that was heresy at that time because there are lots of people outside god's grace in their minds at that time and then he says this fellow israelites listen to this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, speaking to the people, the thousands of people around him, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Now that is not a sermon you recover from very often. Can you imagine this same Peter, Freddy Cat Peter, now in front of thousands saying, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him a hold of him. Death could not beat him. You killed him. God raised him up. And you know what they said to Peter after that sermon? Well, what must we do to be saved? That was their response. He said, be baptized. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And follow everything that Jesus has commanded us to do. You see, Peter in Acts 2 becomes fearless, fearless. And you and I can become that as well. We can, in Jesus' name. I want you to think about what you fear most. And, and I, I, I just want to say this up front. We all have widely different backgrounds and problems and worries. And, and it's always good for me. I have a friend um, that knows a lot more than I do about other places of the world. And right now today, there are people whose Christianity causes their life to be on the line. And I was visiting with a very real eyewitness friend of mine who told me this story. I want to share it with you. I, I can't tell you names and I can't tell you places um, because I don't want to put anybody in danger. But I can tell you this. The story was told to me just about a week ago. And there was this man, we'll call him Charlie, and he was invited to tea with his Muslim friend. And when Charlie arrived, he found his friend and another man 
So, so Charlie goes to see his friend, and he sees him, and there's this other man. We're going to call him Rahim. Rahim tells Charlie that he was an executioner for ISIS. Real story, first-hand account. And, and he says that he had killed 25 people, all Christians, all believers. Now, Rahim, this executioner for ISIS, had a dream the other night where a man in a white robe told him to stop killing his people. You see, when no one else can even get to folks, God intervenes himself and Jesus comes to people. He says, a man came to me in my dream and, and he was wearing a white robe and he said, stop killing my people. And, and they said this, you know, the last person that I had executed, the last Christian, he, he told me, he, he said, please take my Bible and read it before you kill me. And so he did. Rahim told him that he did that and he read the scriptures and he wanted to find out more about how to become a follower of Jesus. Friends, this happened this year. This is real. Now this is, you may have known that, but here's the unpublished part of the story that my friend told me. He said, Charlie shared with him about following Jesus and what that looked like. And Rahim decided to follow Jesus. He was an ISIS executioner, but now he follows Jesus. But obviously, to stay alive, he had to leave the nation where he was. So Charlie connected with him and the believers, the workers in a nearby uh, other nation. And now Rahim is living there. And he told the Christian team in that country that ISIS will be trying to find him. Of course, they don't deal well with defectors. They kill them. And he said that they're going to find me within a few weeks. He says this, so I need to be discipled quickly. I need to know everything I need to know about following Jesus now. Because one of two things is going to happen, he said. Either one, they're going to come here and find me, and they're going to kill me, and they'll kill you. Or two, You'll teach me how to follow Jesus like I'm asking you to. And then I'll go back to them and let them know of Jesus' love for them. And then they'll kill me there. Either way, I'm going to be with Jesus in a few weeks. He said, smiling and glowing happily. You see, either they're going to come and kill me here because I know the power of Jesus. Or you're going to teach me how to go share it with them. And I'm going to go back to the ISIS executioners. I'm going to tell them the real story that God himself came to me in a dream and I'm excited about it. He can come and save you too and you can follow him as well. Either way, I'm dead in a few weeks and I'm happy about it. This is real fear that has been cast aside in Rahim's life. Now, I don't suppose that any of you are going to be living that story in the next couple of weeks. Your story probably looks a little more like Glenn and Melton. Every once in a while, Chantel shares stories with me, and I thought this fit really well. She, she wrote this. This is her daughter, Amma. She says, Amma's been walking around for four days with that green blob on her head. She said, we didn't say anything or even look that hard at it because Amma's our third child. She said, now, if our seven-year-old, our firstborn, Chase, had entered in our presence with a green blob on his head, I would have gasped and scrubbed him down and you know, with an organic wipe and grilled them about the source of the green blob and Googled the source to ensure that there were no toxic materials, all that. You know, and, and I probably would have taken him to the pediatrician, but, but not her. She's our third kid. She says, now, here's, here's the thing. With our first children, we, we were like, hey, look, look, look at this child that we made. They're, and and they're, they're sort of like, you know, pancakes. You kind of mess up the first one, but the rest of them come out okay. And we mean well, we're just not that good at being parents on the first one. You know, sorry all your first kids out there. I'm the baby. Um, but, you know, we're, we're trying to prove something through our kids and, and quite desperate. And we, we want them to be sort of like representations of ourselves. They're not. There's no such thing as reproduction. There's just production. 
They are whoever God makes them to be. So we say to our first kids, smile, say hello, eye contact, please, wipe your nose. And, 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 this, and Chase, their first child, would say, but mom, almost cursing and crawling across the street naked. And she appears to have gotten yet another tattoo. And, and, and we'll say to our oldest child, eye contact, use your manners. Anyway, like she says, Alma's been green for four days, and I kept thinking the green would fade, but every morning it somehow seems fresher, brighter. So this morning I made her take a shower because desperate times call for desperate measures. And when she got out of the shower, she writes, I noted that the green was gone, and I dried her off in a towel, and I sent her off to her room to get dressed. Five minutes later, though, Alma walked back into the kitchen with a new green blob on her head. Oh, no, she didn't, I thought. I showered that child. I want public credit for the shower. So I said to her, Sister, I give up. What's going on with the green blob? And she looked up at her and she said, Mom, I'm a child of God. She pointed to her forehead and she said, My green is to remember so I can be brave. And then Glennon writes this. She says, You guys, she's marking herself. She's recreating Ash Wednesday every morning. She's making herself a sacrament, which is an outward reminder of an invisible truth. Every morning she's saying to herself and the world, I'm God's, I'm God's, so I can be brave. I belong to God, so I can be brave. Of course, we know tonight that the most repeated phrase in the Bible is what? Fear not. Be not afraid. Fear not. And the second most repeated phrase in the Bible is remember. Remember. Fear not. Remember, I am with you. That you are a child of God. I am with you. Be brave. Do not be cowardly. Be brave. Fear not. And friends, do whatever it takes to remember that you are a child of God. Paint it above your door. Tie it to your wrist. Stamp it on your forehead. I am a child of God. Be brave. Be not afraid. Fear not. So friends, I, I want to invite you to close your eyes for just a second. Just close your eyes. It's, it's not necessarily a prayer unless you want it to be. I want you to think about what you fear most. For many of us, it's losing a child. Or, or losing another child. Or we're afraid that our marriage isn't going to last another day, another week, or another year. Certainly not till we die. Afraid of those things. We're afraid that our health is going to go or the health of someone we love is going to go. And, and on behalf of Jesus, I want you to hold that thing in your, in your mind. And I want you to hear the Lord's voice to you tonight. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. For I am with you. You're not alone. Fear not. I am with you. Fear not. Really. Fear not. I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. Don't fear those that can only kill the body. Fear not. I'm with you. Always. To the end of time. Friends, I invite you to ask God to make you fear less in that piece of your life. Whatever that is. You need not fear what Jesus has already conquered. Fear not, for I am with you. In Jesus' mighty resurrected name, all of God's people say, Amen.